um, and we'll be reading Nehemiah chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Halakiah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the twelfth year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the providence who had survived in the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard those wor these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the Lord, for the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenants and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you've commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you've commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, through your out, though your outcasts are in the, most other, in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the name that I have chosen, to the place that I have chosen, and make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name, and give success to your servant today, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. Dear Lord, I just pray today that we open our eyes to you, our hearts to you, and allow us to be moved by your joy and by your love. Allow us to forget what is going on outside of this building, uh, to focus on you, on your word, and I pray that Tommy, as he preaches, that we hear from you and your Holy Spirit, Lord, and that your truth shines brighter than anything else. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. I am uh, Pastor Tommy. I'm really glad that you're here worshiping with us this morning. If this is your first Sunday, I want to give you an extra warm welcome. You came at pretty much the perfect time. Uh, we started our fall sermon series on the book of Nehemiah, and last week we took the time uh, to look at the book as a whole, and I provided an overview of where the events of Nehemiah exist on the grand timeline of redemptive history, and I'd recommend that you take a listen to that. It's on our podcast. Um, it'll catch you up. It'll give you uh, just the big picture that's really helpful to understand where the book of Nehemiah fits into the historical timeline. Um, and it'll give you some major themes to keep in mind as we continue on, things that we're going to be returning back to throughout uh, the semester. But this morning, we're going to jump straight into the text. Um, there's, there's a lot to get through, so let me just pray for us and we'll dive right in. Father, we're, just, we're grateful for your word this morning. And we're grateful that when oceans rage and when the earth quakes and the world feels like it's turning upside down around us and when we ourselves are turned inside out, when we're filled with fear and anxiety and, and anger or hopelessness and despair, God, thank you that your word is solid ground for us, that in you we have a firm foundation. And so, Father, we ask you that you would give us just a moment of clarity and understanding this morning, and may your word do what only your word can do, and may we not leave here the same 
as when we came. Let your word, God, be written on our hearts this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you haven't already, please open up your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, please grab one from underneath your seats. Um, encourage you to uh, at least have it open up on your phone. Uh, I'll have references outside of Nehemiah up on these screens, um, but I, I want to encourage you to not just take my word for it. I want you to look at God's word and take him at his word uh, as we read it together, starting in chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Shislev, in the twentieth year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. So here's what's happening. Nehemiah is a man who we learn uh, at the end of this chapter is actually a cupbearer to the king. And we're going to talk more about what that implies, but what it entails is that it's his job to serve the king of Persia wine. And he's not just a bartender or an, an errand boy filling up the cup of the king when it gets a little bit low. The cupbearer is a really prestigious position and they're responsible for the health and the welfare of the king. One of the most common ways of assassination in ancient times was through poisoning. And so kings and other really powerful people would hire someone to make sure that their beverages and their food were void of any poison. Now, when you think about it, you couldn't have just anybody do this. You needed someone that you can trust. And not just trust a little bit. Like You need to be able to literally trust them with your life. And not just someone that you could trust with your life, but someone who you could trust with your life who would actually be like smart enough and sharp enough to be able to handle the job. Someone who would be gifted with logistics and administration to be able to discern and thwart a plot against the life of the king. From when the grapes came off the vine all the way to when the cup touches the mouth of the king. That's a very unique person. The Nehemiah was this kind of person. And the book, as we continue to read, is going to reveal that as we go on. Nehemiah, as we'll learn, is a man of great administrative giftings. He, he has an incredibly sharp eye for details. He's almost unbearably meticulous. But he's also a man of great integrity. He's, he's open and transparent about the way that he lives his life. What we'll see as this book goes on is that it's no wonder Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the Persian king, despite it being particularly strange that he's not Persian. He's actually a Jew. So just think about that for a moment. The Persian king, he could have anyone he wants to do this job. He commands incredible power. He trusted his life and at some points would confide in someone who wasn't even Persian. That says a lot about Nehemiah's character. And at this point, this specific point is very important because while Nehemiah serves the Persian king and supports the Persian empire, which is hundreds of miles away from Jerusalem, he still identifies closely with his people, the nation of Israel, the people of God. How do we know this? Well, because he's sitting comfortably in Susa, the capital city of the Persian Empire, and he sees his brother and some men of Judah, and he asks them, hey, how are the people doing? Those who survived the exile, who made it back to Jerusalem, how are they? It's the first thing that he asks them. It's on the top of his mind. Right away, what you see is Nehemiah, as a man of God, having care and compassion for his people. 
it would be very easy for him to be isolated and insulated, kind of living comfortably and staying busy with his own affairs all the way over in Persia. But there is a faithful connectedness that Nehemiah has with his people, the people of God. This is something that we're going to see modeled for us right at the beginning of this book, all the way to the very end of the book. Nehemiah is not a person who lives in isolation from his community, even when he is physically isolated from his community. But he is a person who both cares for and is compassionate toward the needs of others. One of the first questions to ask is, is that us? Do we care about other Christians and their well-being? And never mind Christians who are halfway around the world, but Christians right here in Massachusetts, or maybe your fellow brothers and sisters right here in this room. Are we curious about how people are doing? And not just curious about pleasantries and what they're getting into over the weekend, but really caring about the person to our right and the person to our left and how they're truly doing. And then, from that place, are we compassionate toward them when we hear about their needs? Or... Will we tend to worry exclusively about ourselves, maybe preferring to stay isolated and insulated from the world that's around us and just keeping busy with our own affairs? One of the realities that we need to know is as a community, as a church, we are hurting. There are people in this room right now who are in great trouble and shame, that same phrase that's used in reference to the people in Jerusalem. I don't know if you can perceive this or discern this as you come in and you say hello and then you leave, but based on the prayer requests that we get from the people in this room, those of us who are filling out those connection cards and who are humbly and honestly asking for prayer from the church, this room is full of hurting, lonely, struggling people who are praying constantly for some form of relief from God and a community of friendship with people who actually care about them. This is especially true this past week as people in our church have been mourning the tragic death of Kurt Lawson. He's a friend of many people here in this community. It's especially true today as we remember the attacks on September 11th and the tragic loss of lives on that day 21 years ago today. That includes one of our very own, Jessica Sachs, who was a member of our church at the time who was on flight 11 from Boston to L.A. The loss and grief bear down on many of us this morning for lots of different reasons. But hear this, Mercy House, this is where you come in. So these prayer requests and these needs that we have as a church, we are all as a church responsible for answering them collectively through our care and our compassion for one another as God's people, as one body in Christ. You see this in the book of Philippians. Paul is writing to the church at Philippi in chapter 2. This should be on your screens. Starting in verse 3, he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul's not talking to the pastor. He's not talking to the elders. He's not just talking to the paid staff. He's not just talking to the campus ministry leaders or just the deacons. He's writing to the church, literally, in Philippians 1.1, to all the saints of Christ who are at Philippi. That's everyone. Everyone who calls himself a follower of Christ has a responsibility to one another. 
to count others as more significant than ourselves and to look after the interests of others. Nehemiah was a man who understood this to his very core. He was a selfless man who genuinely cared for others, which is why his first question for his brother is, how are people doing? How are they? And the report comes in from his brother, and it's not good. Look at what Hanani says, verse 3. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. And so the response from Hanani is, the people are in great trouble and shame. Another translation in the NIV, it says, great distress and reproach. The wall around Jerusalem is non-existent. The gates are smoldering. And Nehemiah's response shows that he doesn't just care about his people, but he's driven to compassion for them. Look at how he responds when he hears this. Verse 4, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Nehemiah hears the news, and he takes, it takes the strength right out of his legs. He has to sit down, and then he proceeds to weep and to mourn for days, and then he proceeds to fast and to pray. Nehemiah is affected by this news. It touches him very personally. He's, he's sympathetic to the people who are in this intense trouble and who are under this great shame, and he responds emotionally to it. And Nehemiah's response to the news isn't premeditated. It's not planned. It's actually reflexive, and it's revealing of how he actually feels toward his people. Like if Nehemiah asked how they're doing, and the report from Hanani uh, comes to him, and he responds, oh, that really stinks. Hey, you want to go grab some food? I mean, I think that would be really telling. It would reveal that he might care to some degree about his people, but there's hardly any compassion, definitely no sympathy for his people. What I want to communicate here is that this isn't something that's faked. At least that's not what biblical compassion looks like. It is a response from the depths of who we are that reveals how we truly feel about a person, what our relationship with them is. And emotion is one way that it gets revealed. Now, it doesn't mean that if you don't cry, then that means that you don't care that you're not compassionate. So I'm not saying that tears are a prerequisite for genuine compassion, but I think it does mean that you can hear my challenge to care for one another, and you can go and grab coffee with the person in this room, and then when they tell you their heartbreaking life story or the things that they're going through right now that is causing them intense trouble and shame, you might not be sympathetic or compassionate. You might not be affected or feel a compulsion to help. And if you're not at that place, it doesn't mean that you're just a jerk and that you shouldn't hang out with people and that you're just not a nice person. That's not what it means. It means that you ought to pray that God, through his spirit that lives inside of you, if you are a Christian, pray that God would make you compassionate, that God would soften your heart, that he would transform your indifference and allow you to have the perspective and the awareness and the understanding that are necessary to respond with godly compassion. That's what we do. It's important to consider that compassion for someone requires on some level having an understanding of why something that person is going through is so hard or so hurtful or so challenging for them. 
So for instance, when I tell my little girls, hey, no dessert after dinner today, you've had too many sweets today, they might whine, they might cry, they sometimes throw a fit, and in that moment, it's hard for me to be compassionate. I have no sympathy for them. I, I'm confessing this before you all, mostly because I'm like, I don't get what the big deal is. Like, it's definitely not worth crying over. No dessert, that's not a big deal. People in the world don't have dinner tonight, so you should be thankful for that, right? But that in and of itself is the problem. That's my perspective and my understanding. That's not my little girl's understanding of the situation. To them, this has been something that they've been looking forward to all day. The sweet, sugary goodness is the best thing about life. Like, from their perspective, it tastes like nothing else that they've ever had, and they get this little jolt of joyful energy whenever they have some sugar. And when that's being taken away, never to be enjoyed ever again for all of eternity, Father, why would you do this to me? Why even go on with life? My girls are very dramatic. We joke about this, but it's true. This is an extreme glimpse, glimpse into how compassion works. When we aren't compassionate toward others, it's usually because we don't understand. We, we might understand a different reality, maybe even a truer reality. So in this instance, that sweets really aren't that good. Like sugar wreaks havoc on our bodies. One day we're going to be, they are going to be avoiding calorically dense and nutritionally useless foods. And we can all understand that the, the simple fact that if you don't have dessert tonight, it doesn't mean that you're never going to have dessert ever again, right? We might understand these things, but when we struggle to be compassionate towards someone, we don't understand that, that they don't understand. And we don't understand what they do understand, what is their reality, and how that might be catastrophically disappointing, painful, or even traumatic for them. But hear me now, just because we can't understand someone else's pain, it doesn't mean that it's not real. Now, some of us are naturally gifted with compassion. So you might hear this as being referred to as having a, the gift of mercy. We talked about this uh, last semester. These are people who are acutely empathetic, who are drawn to tears, uh, but they're also driven to tears themselves as they're able to just naturally put on the hurt and the pain, and the sadness, the frustration, the experiences of other people. Others of us, maybe the majority of us, are not naturally gifted with this. And so we pray for it, and we strive to grow in this. But even now, I think most of us probably don't understand what Nehemiah is going through, which makes it hard for us to be compassionate toward him as he's experiencing heartbreak right here. I'm sure at least one person here thought, like, what's the big deal? <laughs> what is the big, like, is it worth weeping and mourning and fasting and praying for days just because there's some rubble and fire? You might be thinking, I'm just saying it out loud. See, walls and gates today do not carry the same, the same significance as they did in the ancient world. Today, we have a dedicated armed force that we can call to our doorstep in minutes by just dialing three numbers. For the majority of human existence, that hasn't been a reality. Even when we dial that number by mistake, police officers show up in force to your triangulated cell phone position. They didn't have that in the ancient world. So walls were a form of protection. They were really the only form of safety for a group of people who were banding together. It didn't matter how beautiful your city was. It didn't matter how gorgeous your architecture was or even how big an army you had. If your capital city didn't have walls, it was nothing. 
The idea of not having walls was often used as a metaphor for weakness and for ruin. You see this in places like Proverbs 25, verse 28. This should be on your screen. It says, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. The idea is that if you don't have self-control, you're left defenseless, vulnerable, like a city that doesn't have any walls. Strong walls were also kind of the ultimate flex of a people group. It, it wasn't just about protection and security, but there was a pride and a confidence that you had in your walls. The walls would be a part of the nation's identity. Walls then provide protection and security. They also provided confidence and identity. But look what else they provided. Uh, Psalm 122. This is also going to be up on your screens. This is one of the songs of a sense which we preached through last fall. And I just want you to take a note at what it felt like for Israel to be within the walls as I read this. So starting in verse 1, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. There thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be with you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. The Psalter here communicates gladness when thinking about being in, in the, within the gates and the walls of Jerusalem. They're communicating joy. The word peace is used often there. That, that word is shalom. For, for the people of God, there wasn't just a physical sense of protection that came with the walls. There was a spiritual sense of security being within the walls of the city of God. Today, when I say build the wall, there's a lot of uncomfortable connections to that. So when we see Nehemiah praying and weeping and mourning and fasting for days, we don't understand. We don't understand that the walls were more than just stone and mortar and that the gates were more than just wood and metal. Jerusalem's walls were the ultimate symbol of God's protection of his people. And not just to keep them physically safe, but it represented their spiritual protection as well. So when Nehemiah hears that his people are in great trouble and great shame, it's directly connected to the physical devastation of Israel's walls and gates. They are defeated, they are a de dejected, and they are a physically, and even more importantly, spiritually vulnerable people. And that is why... Nehemiah responds like this in verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. The destruction of the walls and the gates, the fact that the city was reduced to rubble, was the lowest point in Israel's very rocky journey. They've had some lows. This is their rock bottom. And it was the result of their waywardness and their disobedience toward God. This is one of the most important themes of the book of Nehemiah, the connection between the physical world and the spiritual world. Nehemiah is driven to compassion because he understands the connection between the two. He knows that the physical devastation of Jerusalem is symbolic of their spiritual relationship with God as a nation. 
So remember, this has already been, been called in already. The prophet Jeremiah is pleading with Israel to repent of their idolatry and sinfulness and return to be faithful to God. And God warns them through Jeremiah that the Babylonians are going to come and they're going to conquer and destroy their city and scatter everybody, but they don't listen. And so here we are. But Nehemiah doesn't just understand the spiritual reality of his people. He's able to understand how it feels for them to be in that place. How it feels to be living in ruins, in their poverty, with no walls or gates, with no sense of physical or spiritual protection. He's able to have compassion for them, a people in great trouble and great shame. And this is how Nehemiah responds, by mourning the loss and then praying for his people. And I think this verse shows us two things, that mourning and praying are ways to actively serve people in need. Let me say that again. Mourning and praying are two ways to actively serve people in need. So let's look at mourning. Mourning, or maybe the experience of sorrow or sadness on behalf of someone else, is a productive part of serving others in need. The experience of feeling the emotions and processing them is not just an inconvenient byproduct of sin. It is the appropriate way that we are to respond to brokenness and sin in the world. Not only that, but it gives us a way to build relationship and connection with those who are suffering and grieving as well. So I have to confess, I personally struggle with this. For a long time, I've seen grief as an unnecessary experience something that just sidelines people for, for a little while. I've never seen crying as productive. Like, why are we crying over spilled milk? What's the big deal? And so I spent a lot of my time stuffing down sadness and grief, busying myself with life, distracting myself with tasks, pushing through to solve a problem or to deal with a situation. And that's a lie that I believed. I bet I'm not the only person in this room who believes that. That in order to be strong, maybe even as a leader, in order to lead well, you have to keep it together. You have to be emotionless. But Nehemiah, a godly man who's, who goes down as one of the best leaders in history, he shows us that mourning is a productive part of serving others in need. It's also an important part of what it means to be a good leader. Nehemiah, man, this guy loses it. All right, we can be honest there. He's not just getting a little misty-eyed, not like a little lone tear running down his face. Like he wept and he mourned for days. Nehemiah is not an outlier. Every single prophet in the Bible spends time in sackcloth and ashes, mourning and grieving over other people, over their people. Ezra, the first half of these two books, the prophet um, this is going to be in Ezra chapter 10. Here's an example of it in verse 6 of chapter 10. Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the chamber of Jehohanan, Jehohanan, the son of Eliashib, where he spent the night neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. So not just Old Testament, even early church leaders spent time grieving and mourning over the sins of their congregation. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 21. This is Paul writing to the Corinthians. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. So even Paul is anticipating a time of mourning as he comes to Corinth. Jesus himself, John chapter 11, verse 35, when he 
experiences the, the death of his beloved Lazarus in chapter 11, verse 35, it says Jesus wept. Again, not a lone tear. Weeping is uncontrollable crying and sobbing. The people of God, even God himself, do not stuff down their emotions. They don't distract themselves with work. They don't numb themselves with entertainment. They take the time to feel, to weep, to mourn, and to grieve because this is the appropriate and and important response to sin. Sin people are implicated in, but also the effects of sin like death. And so a question for us is, do we grieve, Mercy House? Do we allow ourselves to feel emotion? Or are we allergic to that pain? Maybe afraid of what that pain brings? Do we want nothing to do with it and will do anything to avoid it? Like I mentioned, I'm personally convicted in this, and I want to grow in this, because for us to be godly men and women, we not only ought to care for one another and be compassionate with one another, but have the capacity to be able to mourn and grieve with those who are hurting and suffering. We don't stay there forever, but it is a necessary step, a necessary step of loving and serving one another. If you're anything like me, you might shed some tears and you might say, all right, what's next? How do we, how do we rebuild this thing? Who are we going to enlist? What supplies do we need? Anyone good with masonry? Anyone know how to build a gate? But Nehemiah, who is head and shoulders above me in this type of administrative thinking and project management, that's not where his head goes. He spends time grieving and mourning and then praying. Lots of praying, day and night filled with praying. I think this shows us a second way that we can actively serve those in need. Before we write a check, before we go ourselves, and that is through prayer. And for many of us, prayer is a last resort. This is what we do when there's nothing else to do. We don't know what else to do. For Nehemiah, we see that this was his first step in solving any problem is to go to the Lord in prayer. And one thing that you'll see throughout the entire book is how prayerful Nehemiah is. It's really beautiful. You'll see parts of the narrative just pause, and we hear that Nehemiah prays to God, and then the narrative continues. It's almost mid-sentence. But what I want you to see is that prayer is a very practical action. It's not like tossing a coin into a fountain and then making a wish and hoping that God kind of blesses it and then we go on with our lives. No, Nehemiah prays before he even knows what to do and he relies on that prayer to take the next steps. We're going to finish these final verses and I want you to look at how Nehemiah prays, which I think gives us a model for how we ought to pray in a way that actively and practically serves others who are in need, starting in verse 5. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you have commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. 
But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. There's a distinct flow to Nehemiah's prayer and it flows like this. He he looks upward at God and who God is He looks inward at the hearts of the Israelites in his own heart. He looks backwards at what God has done and what he has promised. And then he looks forward to what is next. There should be a little graphic. It looks like a cheat code for a video game. I realized that after I made it. But it's upward at who God is, inward at who he is, backward at what God has done, and forward to what's next. Nehemiah opens his prayers by acknowledging God for who he is. Verse 5, And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. How often do we start our prayers with what we need? Dear God, please help me get through this moment right now. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's a valid prayer. Like, God help is a very appropriate prayer, which God hears and he responds to. But when we have the time, we should be encouraged to begin our prayers acknowledging God and who God is out of reverence and respect for the God of heaven, the the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. When I was younger, in my early 20s, I had to go to court to contest a ticket for reckless endangerment. That's a whole nother story. But the point of the story is, um, I I met with my friend who was a defense attorney, and he was nice enough to walk me through uh, what to say, and he said, Tommy, just make sure that you're very respectful uh, of the judge, and that you call him uh, your honor and sir when you're you're speaking to him or her. And and as an arrogant early 20-something, I asked him, like, do I have to do that? Like, do I technically have to do that? And he said, well, no, you don't have to, but you really should. And there's an understanding, even on a social level, that some people in some professions and positions of authority ought to be acknowledged accordingly, with respect. And so how much more for the God of heaven? See, acknowledging who God is, it helps us see ourselves in the right context. It often puts us and our needs, the things that we're about to pray for, in the right perspective, which is why Nehemiah moves prayer for, in his prayer from up at God to who he is, to, to, to an inward reflection of himself. Look at verse 6. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant. Then I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I, my father's house, have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. As Nehemiah acknowledges God in his goodness and his perfection, He's able to accurately see himself and his brothers and sisters in the correct light as sinners who are disobedient toward God, not as good and perfect like God is. Now notice how he identifies alongside those whom he's praying for. 
Nehemiah isn't just praying a prayer of pity for the shameful, sinful humans uh, that, 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 that are alongside him. He actually lumps himself in with the Israelites. He implicates his own family, and he identifies as a broken and sinful human alongside them. And talk about a bridge to the gospel and what Christ has done for us. More on this later. But this is, in part, what his mourning and his grieving has done. As he has been processing where Israel is at and what they've gone through, he's able to see that he's not immune from the spiritual distance from God that the exiles are experiencing. That's what his prayer is acknowledging, that Israel needs help, but that he's also in the same boat as Israel. This is what godly men and women do. They enter into the messes of their brothers and sisters. They make their mess their own. That's what it means to carry one another's burdens. But when we acknowledge our own sin and our brokenness, when we carry the burdens of others, we must be careful lest we collapse under that weight. We're not meant to carry the burdens of other people's grief and pain and trauma indefinitely. We're called to carry them and bring them to the Lord. And Nehemiah does this by shifting from looking inward at his own brokenness and his sin and the brokenness and sinfulness of Israel, and then he looks backward at what God has done. Look at verse 8. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Nehemiah points back at the original covenant. And we talked about this last week. What he's saying is, hey God, remember how you said to Moses that if we're unfaithful to you in keeping the covenant, then you'll scatter us apart. But also remember, God, that you said if we repent and if we keep your commandments, then you will gather us back together. You will restore us. Like, do you remember saying that? Well, here we are. We are your people, and we are repenting. See, there's like an implied request in there. It's like when my six-year-old, who has an impeccable memory, she'll say, hey, Daddy, remember when you said if I fill my chart and go to bed every night for four weeks without making a fuss, then you'll take us all to the movies and have ice cream? Well, the chart is full, so there you go. And one of the things that this shows us is the importance of having good theology and how that can help us pray effectively. Nehemiah isn't saying, God, restore your people because you always want your people to be comfortable. That's not the God of the Bible, and that's, that's not what he's praying. He's also not saying, God, help your people because we're the best nation on the earth and you promise prosperity to, to your people. That's also not what he's praying, and that's also not what the God of the Bible says. What's revealed in this part of his prayer is that Nehemiah knows the word of God. He knows the promises of God, and perhaps most importantly, he's relying on those promises of God. Mercy else, if you want to grow in your prayer, I want to encourage you, read God's word. Study God's word. Rely on God's word. Our prayers are more effective when we are in line with the heart of God which is revealed to us in God's word. Lastly, Nehemiah looks forward 
in his prayer. Verse 11, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. This man is in reference to the king. You see right after that that he's a cupbearer to the king. Nehemiah is praying for favor. The last verse reveals that he's, like I mentioned, the cupbearer to the king, and, and he has a relationship with someone who might be able to help. Nehemiah doesn't know. He just knows the situation he's in. So Nehemiah takes time to grieve. He takes time to pray. But let's not forget that Nehemiah is a man of action. He's not wallowing, but he's also not scheming. He's asking God to do the work that only God can do, to fulfill the promises that he made in his word, but Nehemiah is also ready to be a part of that solution, to use whatever he has at his disposal, everything that he is as a person in order to serve the Lord and to serve his people in this prayer. Sometimes I think we pray without considering how we might be able to be an answer to those prayers. The reality is that it might be really costly to be an answer to that prayer. It might be incredibly inconvenient to be an answer to that prayer. But Nehemiah will demonstrate that he's willing to, to both be greatly um, affected financially, but then also greatly inconvenienced if it means helping God rebuild Israel. So this whole chapter, chapter 1, shows us how godly men and women interact with those who are hurting and suffering spiritually and physically. Like Nehemiah, we're called to care for one another. We're called to have hearts of compassion for one another. We're called to enter into suffering and grieve with one another and then to actively pray for one another while considering how we might be able to be an answer to that prayer. But before the book of Nehemiah is an encouragement and an inspiration for us to live more like men and women of God, it is first and foremost a foreshadowing of Jesus. So let's ponder this together for a minute as we finish for the day. Nehemiah represents Jesus, and we are represented by the exiled Israelites. Let me tell you what I mean. In our sin, we are scattered from one another. We are aliens without a home. And many of us can identify with sitting in piles of rubble and ash, that is, our lives as a product of our sinfulness or the sinfulness of others. And we've experienced that rock bottom. And without some sort of divine intervention, that is our eternal fate. Being spiritually vulnerable with no shalom, just like the Israelites in great trouble and great shame. But here's the good news, is that Jesus cares for you. Like Nehemiah, when he hears the news, he weeps. And he cares, and he's drawn to compassion for you. He doesn't just care for you. When he sees us in our trouble and our shame, it reveals Jesus' heart for us. It's not something that is faked. You see this in Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. This is Jesus talking about Jesus. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Does that sound familiar? Jesus grieves with us and is sympathetic to our experience. He understands what we understand, to use the language from earlier, and he knows what we're experiencing in a way that no human on earth is able to understand and, and know. No matter how great someone's mercy gift is or how long they sit with us in our mess, God knows it more intimately. And incredibly, 
Jesus prays for you and he prays for me. He intercedes on our behalf. When no one else is praying or, or even knows what to pray for you, God does, and he's doing that for you. He's praying for you day and night. And like Nehemiah, Jesus is a man of action. Jesus made our problem of sin his own problem. That's what Nehemiah did. Like Nehemiah, Jesus leaves his honorable and prestigious position and enters into the mess of his people. And he takes the burden of our sin upon his own shoulders. Nehemiah was trying to rebuild walls and remove the shame of the people. Jesus is building his eternal kingdom and has fully removed eternal guilt and shame from us. Jesus is our gate and our walls. He's the ultimate protector. He's providing us with total peace and total security from anything and everything that would try to harm us or steal our joy. Jesus is our confidence. He is our identity because he is our true stronghold. We'll see Nehemiah contributing vastly to the rebuilding out of his own pocket. Jesus contributes to the rebuilding of us with his own life. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and broke it, saying, this is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. As we take communion, remember the cost of your security and your safety in him. This is the assurance that nothing can get to you. This is your wall. These are your gates. And Jesus died so that he could bring ultimate healing to a people who were in great trouble and shame. He offered up his life so that we could be united together as an eternal kingdom. And as his people, we are called to do what he did, to live like he lived, to care for one another, have compassion for one another, to grieve with one another, and then to pray for one another, and ultimately being prepared to serve one another. Let's pray. Father, you are grand and holy and majestic. You are perfect in all your ways. There's no imperfection in you. You are truth, and your word is truth. God, we confess that we often are not drawn to compassion like you are. That is not our reflex. We are not, under normal circumstances, naturally drawn towards sick and suffering people, God, but you are. God, you have demonstrated this over and over again throughout history. God, you don't plug your nose or recoil as you interact with sinful, broken people, but you rush in, you identify with us. God, I pray that you would help us as we learn how to be mature men and women of God. I pray that these realities of experiencing your care and your compassion would transform our hearts, God. And I pray that it would lead us to a place of wanting to do that for other people, God. 
but we can't do what we haven't experienced. So I pray for those in this room who are sitting in ash, sitting in rubble, who feel vulnerable physically and spiritually, who are grieving and who are mourning. Lord, I pray that they would experience your care and compassion in a supernatural way this morning, God. I pray for other brothers and sisters who are able and capable to be able to come in and be a physical representation of that care and that compassion, God. Help us to love and serve one another in this way. Lord, let us be a church that cares and is compassionate, and let our plan of attack be to pray, God. Lord, let us be a church that prays. And so we pray now together as a church. Lord, lead us in this. God, help us in this. Help us to experience your love and your care this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen.